0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. This episode of The Truth of the Matter is a crossover with our Unpacking Impact podcast, which I host with my friend and colleague, Naveen Thakaram. In this episode, we talk to legendary investor Mark Lastry, who also owns the Milwaukee Bucks.
1: So, Mark, first of all, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you for having me. It's actually a real pleasure. Mark, at CSIS here, we're in the national security business, and increasingly, you know, national security is about economics. How are you thinking about the war in Ukraine and how it's affecting the world, how it's affecting business in the United States, how it's affecting the global economy? You know, it's a
2: great question. It really
0: is, because you're absolutely
2: right. You know, people don't fully appreciate all the different effects that the war has had and the war is having. I mean, you, you sort of see the big effects, which is what's happened to sort of U.S. businesses that were doing business in Russia, right, and how all of us have stopped. And, you know, depending on who you are, you've lost quite a bit of money because you had a business there. You know, for us, we had four planes, You know, that we had leased out to a Turkish airline and they were going back and forth to Russia when the sanctions got announced those planes were in Russia. And, you know, we tried to get them back, but you couldn't. But I think the, the part that people miss is, and it's having really global implications and you're seeing it with the price of oil, that's having a huge impact, I think, on average Americans. And, you know, the question is, ultimately, what happens if Europe stops really buying natural gas or stops buying oil from Russia? Where are you going to refill those 3 million barrels a day? And then you've also got the question of sort of Ukraine is one of the largest exporter of food. And because of that, that's having another impact and sort of people don't fully appreciate all those side issues. And I actually think they're not even side issues anymore. They're becoming huge. You know, they're taking center stage. So you see the loss of life that's going on and people see that and they go, well, okay, that's, that's not my issue. You know, that's a regional conflict. But all the other issues are becoming bigger and bigger. And then the question is, and what we would worry about is do we find ourselves in a war with Russia and sort of the implications of that? So, you know, it just got announced, you know, that inflation is, it's gone back up. So it's, I think it's 8.8%. It's a
0: four decade high.
2: Yeah, it really is. And I don't think Americans have been used to that and what it's doing. So to your, sorry to give a long answer, but you guys know this better than I do. It's actually made countries like Saudi Arabia and other oil producing countries, More important, right? So, whereas before, when oil is at $60 or $30, they need the help of the United States more. Today, you know, Biden is going to visit and Biden's going there, you know, literally asking Saudi Arabia to increase production to try to bring the price of oil down. And if you're Saudi Arabia, where you were having issues before, all of a sudden with the price of oil today, it's
0: phenomenal. And they're, you know, they're printing money today. I, w- I wonder if you think that if oil had been at $60 a barrel, would Vladimir Putin had I even been able to go into Ukraine and start this war?
2: I actually don't think he would have. I think part of it is there's a lot of capital and monies that are going into Russia because of this. So in essence, you're helping fund the war, but you're also helping fund you know, things that are going on in Russia. So, I mean, national security is very dependent on what is happening economically. Countries will do things to you know, preserve their interests or to help their economies. And that has a big
1: impact on national security. And I think you're absolutely correct. From an investment perspective at Avenue, Which of those factors are you really looking closely at? You mentioned a number, including food insecurity, the possibility of an increased conflict. Obviously, inflation has been affected by the war and what's happening with the price of oil. Which of those factors are you taking into account the most when you're making investment decisions right now? Or are you primarily trying to sit on cash and wait to see what happens? You've got to take advantage of what's
2: going on. So I think for us right now, we're making investments on the energy side a number of investments that we had made, we've been getting out of those. You're looking at new investments. I think sort of what's happening with rates is a big factor. I mean, the Fed, if you sort of look at sort of the impact it's had on our economy, inflation is forcing the Fed to raise rates. And sort of the cost of that to average Americans is actually pretty big. I mean, just think about You know, the average home price in the United States is $300,000. So if you had a mortgage, which most people do, and you have an adjustable rate mortgage, in the last year, your cost of that has gone up by 50%. And the Fed is telling you it's going to go even higher. So, you know, that means rates should, you know, pretty much from a year ago, double. And so for an average American, all of a sudden, you're getting hit by two things, you know, the cost of gas, the cost of heating, and now the cost of your home just to live there. So, yeah, those are pretty big issues. So, you know, for us, you know, we're trying to figure out because of rising rates, you've got a lot of fixed income instruments that have gone down in value and people are worried about a recession, so what we try to do is find investments that we think are mispriced so that, you know, as things turn, hopefully we, we do pretty well.
0: You know, President Biden's had to enact the Defense Production Act twice in this last month, once on baby formula, just recently on solar. Do you think that businesses hold the key to solving some of these problems? I don't know if they
2: hold the key. I think they... I think they can ease some of those problems. Right. And I mean, you know, the baby formula, that's just a shocker. Like it's not,
0: it's not something you ever would have thought, Oh, listen, we're going to have a shortage of baby formula. And I can't imagine what these young parents are doing when I have three sons and you know, they're teenagers and, and a little older now, but when they were kids, if we couldn't have Similac or whatever it was, I, you know, talk about panic.
2: You know, uh, my boys just had little kids and it's a real issue. It really is. You know, we're looking for baby formula. Everybody's trying to find some baby formula. And look, it's, I, I, I don't think Biden had a choice. I think he should have done it earlier. He should have done it quicker. And I think companies are trying to do what they can. But I think these economic issues or production issues that you're going to have, I mean, they will ease some of the problems, but the big issues that you have out there, those are not easily solved unless you have less demand, right? So oil prices will continue going up. And instead of having, you know, we, we all took economics 101 when we were in college. Some of us might have taken it in high school. But, you know, if you sort of think about it, when you have a tremendous amount of demand and not a lot of supply, prices are going up. And that's what's happening right now. And you're going right into the summer. So you're going to have this huge amount of demand. Supply is being controlled. So yeah, prices are going to keep going up.
0: Yeah, my 15-year-old, who you know also believes that he holds the analytical key to solving all of the NBA's team's issues, said to me the other day, dad, it's just basic economics.
2: Yeah, no, it's. It's the same thing, it really is. Every business is the same, it really is supply demand. Everybody wants the best players, right? So therefore the best players get paid an exorbitant, you know, a huge amount of money. And they're actually, not only are they entitled to it, they're worth it, right? And because they help your team win. So it really is just simple economics.
0: You know, you're known for turning around distressed businesses and investing in distressed businesses. What's it like buying into a distressed NBA team and then just a couple years later winning the NBA championship and really being at the forefront of, you know, the best players in the NBA, great coach, great team, great young players. What's that like?
2: One, it's it's really fun. So it's great. I think when we bought the Bucks, when we looked at it, the team was literally last in almost everything. Yeah. Right. So... When you looked at it, you were like, look, there's a tremendous amount of room here for improvement. And part of it is, you know, and I'm a big believer that you can turn around companies or organizations if you hire really talented people, right? So that start at the front office and start, get a great coach, get a great GM and just work your way down. And then, you know, great GM is going to be able to draft and sign, you know, different players that he thinks will fit with the team. I will tell you, and I think it's true in almost everything, you have to be a little lucky, right? And I think we got extremely lucky because when we bought the team, Giannis was on the team. He had just been drafted and nobody knew how good he was going to be. And I think as he developed and became a great player, I think our, our coach and our GM ended up doing a great job in getting a number of other players to support him So that's the good news that you became a perennial playoff team. That was the goal. And part of it was when you're a playoff team, you know, things can happen. And I think we played extremely well last year. And because of that, we were able to win a championship. So it's actually funny out of the 30 teams, I think only 14 have won championships. Right. So
0: you realize how hard it is. Some like my beloved Washington franchise, which we used to call the Bullets, Have not been in in the show since 1979, which I remember clearly as a young kid with my parents. You know, back in the day when my parents were starting out, we had these uh, friends who were Israeli, and they had season tickets to the Bullets, and they would go to Israel all the time, and they would give us their season tickets when they weren't there. And man, you know, those were the days, and we haven't had one since. I
2: haven't, and it's hard. It really is. And I think part of it is just, whatever, it's management and a little bit of luck and last year we were able to win a championship this year chris middleton got hurt and because of that you know when your second best player gets hurt it's hard it's hard to sort of go all the way and and that's the issue you know what you quickly find out in the nba is if you're healthy and you're good you've got a really good shot of winning a championship but that means you've got to stay healthy during the playoffs and that's just hard it just is and last year we were able to do it this year you know, Chris got an unlucky injury, so you try to do the best you can. But, yeah, that's it, – it, it's a great feeling. I think it's something you hoped you were going to be able to do. And, you know, I think when you start off the season, everybody's like, ah, this is the year. <laughs> and then um, you sort of keep going on. It's a long season. And I think for the Bullets, they've had some – or the Wizards yeah. now, right? They've had some issues. You know, and it's hard. it's hard. It's hard building a team that's actually going to compete every year. How does that
1: pressure of trying to win a championship compare to managing you know, a multi-billion dollar investment firm? I'm always curious about high achievers' mindsets. So I'm curious how you manage your mindset when you, when you talk about managing two, what most would think are very high pressure enterprises.
2: Again, that's a great question. The way to look at it, on the business side, so on the investment side, I think I can control that. And what I mean by that is I can do my work and I I think I understand what's happening and I will make a decision based on that, right? So, you know, we can take a look at oil. Do you think the price of oil is going up or down, right? And we all have the same analysis, right? We have the same information, which is you're going to have all these exogenous events and what will end up happening and sort of, you know, you then make a decision based on that and you're right or wrong, right? And, but that's within your control. And by the way, as new information comes in, I can change my mind. I can add to my position. All right. So that's I think on the investment side, I'm not that it's not that it's easy. It's you're making decisions based on your analysis and the information that you have on the basketball side, everything's outside your control, right? It just is. It's not. So you, what you quickly have is this massive amount of frustration. You know, you what are you worried about before every game that you just hope nobody gets hurt. Right. And that's totally outside your control. And yes, you can have a great game plan, but the, is somebody shooting well that day? Right. Is somebody, mm-hmm. what happens? And so what you quickly find out is you try to put the team in the best position you can. Mm-hmm. And if people are healthy, you will, you should be able to do really well. But the health part is a luck factor and you try to make sure everybody stays healthy, that people don't get hurt, but it's part of the NBA and it's part of any professional sport that people do get hurt. So I think that's one of the things I've learned in owning uh, an NBA team is you hope you're going to stay a bit lucky and don't get that upset uh, because there's a lot of things you can't control. You know, there, there was a game once with one of our players and I went in the locker room, you know, the game before he had shot like one for 15. Right. And I went in the locker room and I'm talking to him, I'm like, listen, this game, why don't you try putting the ball in the basket? <laughs> he starts laughing. He goes, oh, why? Because last game I didn't do that. I said, I don't know what you were doing, but I'm just trying to help you out this time. Why don't you focus on putting it in the basket? He goes, ah.
1: You know, with advice like that, how could we lose? I'm sure he said to you, you know, Mark, you want to try this strategy in investing called buy low, sell high. You should try that. It's a, <laughs> I promise you it's going to work for you.
2: You're absolutely correct. You know, it's, it, it's all these things that, you know, the, the best advice buy low and then sell high. And you're yeah. like, Oh, thank you. Right? Easy. You're like, Easy. You're absolutely right. I, I didn't know that. Right. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's just hilarious. But yeah, you try to have a lot of fun
1: with it. Well, as long as we're on the topic of Wisconsin, I was actually born in Racine, Wisconsin. So I wanted to shift a little bit since your son Alex is running for Senate from Wisconsin. And I was just curious, you know, what your family's interest has been in policy and, and politics over the years that led to that. And I understand that he's running, you're not running, but I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, What would you like to see change in Wisconsin or for Wisconsin or in the U.S. Senate, for that matter?
2: I think this is the greatest country in the world. I really do. I mean, it's a phenomenal country. I think as an immigrant, you appreciate everything about the United States, just sort of your ability to be able to do things. You know, when we came to the United States, we had a bunch of help from different government agencies You know, I went to college on scholarship, I went to law school on scholarship. You know, so part of this for me has always been, and with our family, we have five kids, is it's a little bit of what can you do for your country? Like how can you give back? Right. And and it is, it's just, you know, it can sound hokey, it can sound, but you know, one of the things I've tried to do with my kids was look, this is the greatest country. We need to do things. And we're going to try to help because I wouldn't have been able to do the things I did without the help I had. And I think for my son, Alexander, he got involved in politics really early. I was involved in democratic politics and, you know, trying to sort of raise money and, you know, and helping any way I could. And, you know, we did a fundraiser once for President Clinton and he was at our house and Alexander, I think, was 12 and he was talking to him. And, you know, he said to him, what do I need to do if I want to get in politics and I want to, you know, I want to serve how, What? Wh- what's the secret, sir? You became president. What's the secret? And President Clinton smiles. And he goes, it's actually really simple. All you have to do is get one more vote than <laughs> the other guy. <laughs> and, you know, and Alexander was waiting for this, like this whole thing. And, you know, he tells him that and he, and he starts laughing. He goes, no, no, sir, I'm serious. What else do you have to do? that's really it. You, you just have to get one more vote. And, you know, after that, you know, Xander, Xander went to work, you know, he worked at government affairs at Goldman. He went to work in the white house, he worked for Obama and he loved it. And I think, you know, when we were able to buy the bucks, he ended up leading our effort in sort of building the arena, making sure we were using unionized workers and, you know, started getting very involved in the community. And I think when the opportunity came to run, you know, he's young. (laughs) You know, when you're 33 years old, 34 years old, and somebody says, hey, why don't you run for the U.S. Senate? You know, it's a pretty daunting task. I think he wanted to do it. He feels like that he can really help and try to do things for the state of Wisconsin and for, you know, for the American people. Again, I know it sounds a bit hokey, but I think for him, it's something that he really believes in. I think it was John F. Kennedy who said this, when a lot has been given to you, you know, a lot is expected. It is. And you want to try when you've been lucky in life to try to help people who have not been as fortunate as you. And I think he really believes that and wants to try to help. So, you know, Wisconsin has Ron Johnson. I I would tell you, Ron Johnson is not viewed that favorably (laughs) and I I think he's actually done a bad job for the state. I think he's done a bad job for the country. But, you know, those are views, right? And I'm sure there's other people who have a different view. But I think for Alexander, it's a phenomenal experience. And obviously, I, I hope he wins.
0: You know, it's interesting. We've been talking about winning and how to move things forward, you know, In our society now, we try to game out everything with analytics and we try to, you know, be as exacting as possible, whether it's, you know, where is Giannis going to take the highest percentage jump shot from on the floor versus, you know, buy low, sell high and all the quants that go into that. It's refreshing to hear, and I don't think hokey at all, that your son wants to be involved at a deep level in public policy. Do you think it's really hard? To get young people these days to be involved in policy with all the polarization we have. And just like Bill Clinton said, it's, it takes one more vote. They're trying to game out, you know, how can I win versus, you know, my instincts and what can I do for the country? You're absolutely right. I think it's, the reason it's hard is you just get constantly
2: attacked and you've got to have tough skin. I mean, I, I don't like getting attacked. I don't think you like getting attacked. I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's difficult. I think when Alexander decided to run, you know, we talked about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty optimistic person. I do think things usually, I hope they work out. You know, my, my advice to him was, look, right now, I would tell you Mandela Barnes is at, you know, if you do a poll, he's at 40 and you're at five. That's not good odds right? at the end of the day. But if you go out there and you have a message and people believe in you, then force of personality and your ability to have people believe you can bring about change, if that happens, you will win. And I think that's what's happening, right? I think today in his latest poll, he it's a statistical tie, which is great. And part of that is because his message is resonating with people around the state, right? That's the only way, ultimately, at the end of the day, the reason you win elections is because people believe in you, but people believe in what you're saying. Your point, which I think is absolutely correct, is it's hard to get people to do that, right? It just is, especially people who have a lot of different options. So... The constant you always hear about politics is why can't we get really talented people to run, right? And, and I think part of that is just, it's difficult, it's hard, and you've got to be willing to withstand all the negativity that is out there. And I think that's hard, right? And I think for most people, it's just difficult to do to constantly be putting yourself out there. And I think you really have to believe that you you want to help people. You know, I, I sort of look at it, you know, people who do social work, people who do things that are helping others. Those are really difficult jobs. They just are. I think all these things are hard, and it's it's life, right? And I think it, he chose that, and I hope he succeeds.
1: Well, Mark, we really appreciate your time. So we probably want to end on a. On a high note, we've talked about the war polarization and some of the things happening in the economy. I know you're a well-known distress investor, but what gives you hope for a positive future? Oh, everything is just a
2: matter of time. It is. And I think what you will find is that, you know, we've been really lucky in the sense that we've had a 14-year bull cycle. Right? I mean, it's just, I, I think for, for you and I, you know, we think back to days where, you know, there used to be cycles, you know, the, it, things went well, and then there, there was over oversupply, and then all of a sudden, things started coming back down. You know, I remember when interest rates were at 18%, right? People d- can't believe that that actually happened. So when I look at what's going on today, I think, yes, the Fed will keep raising rates. Yes, prices will move up. None of that is positive. But as rates move up, as prices move up, because of the high cost, demand has to come down. It just does. And the question is, does it take six months? Does it take two years, right? So you know, are we talking about a one-year recession or a two-year recession? So you need to sort of go through these valleys a little bit to get out some of the excess. And so to me, I think things are going to be a lot shorter. So I believe it'll be sometime next year where, you know, if you have a recession, it'll be about a year, but it'll be sometime next year. The Fed will stop raising rates, right? Inflation will get under control. And then the other thing that's always, and this is probably a little bit the cynic in me, is that when you go through a presidential election, you know, the focus is very much on how are we turning things around, right? And you know, what is President Biden gonna do to try to make things easier and better for everybody? And I think as that focus starts happening and sort of the same thing on the Republican side, what are they gonna do to try to make things better for the average American? You will find that, you know, at least by 2024, things are looking much better. And the question is, does that start in 2023? I think it does. I think it's sort of the second half of 2023. So we're positioning our firm to start, you know, to take advantage of what we think will be sort of a a mild recession. You know, and if we're right, we'll we'll do well, right? If we're wrong, then things will take a lot longer and we probably mistimed it a little bit.
0: Mark, thank you very much for this today. It's a fascinating discussion. We're really lucky to have you with us, so thank you.
2: No, my pleasure, thank you. It's been fun. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify,